we're still in our series called What Wondrous Love Is This? And we are in the fourth installment. And if you'll remember, we set out with a simple task. And that task was to take you through five of the pinnacle moments of salvation history. And so we started out with the need for salvation. And Father Tyler talked about from Genesis 3, the fall of mankind. That our ancestors disobeyed God in the garden to such a degree that everything became broken. And they were exiled from God's presence and they received the curse of death and sin. And so mankind's been under the curse ever since. But God, what wondrous love is this. In 3.15 of Genesis says that there's one to come. And there's a woman to come. And she will bear a son that is to come. And that son will receive a bruising, but he will not die. And in his bruising, he will crush the head of Satan, the serpent. And on that day, the curse of mankind will be lifted. So from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation, it's all about God's salvation story. It's all about Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. In uh, Jeremiah last week, chapter 31, we learned about the promise of a new covenant, right? That there's going to be a covenant in blood. And on that day, God will forgive our iniquities and remember our sins no more. No more. And remember Jesus on the night before he died? He took the chalice at the Eucharist and he lifted it up at communion and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. You see how it's all coming together? What wondrous love is this? Last week, Father Fred talked about the suffering servant in 53 of Isaiah. And we read this last week. The suffering servant will be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And now, hundreds of prophecies later and thousands of years later, we sit in this church and hear that prophecy fulfilled. Luke chapter 23, the suffering one has come. So today we're going to walk with Dr. Luke, the Via Dolorosa, or in Latin, it's all in English, it's called the way of suffering, the way of suffering. But if you're like most modern people, you hear that word suffering and you're turned off by it. You don't like it one bit. Why would Jesus be pierced for our transgressions? Why must he be crushed for our iniquities? Why would this man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, have to hang between two criminals on a cross 2,000 years ago? See, most modern people, we don't like to think about a suffering God, do we? I mean, even here in the Bible Belt, we'll have many of you faithful saints of the church who will attend Good Friday services, and you'll gaze at the suffering of the cross. But a whole lot more people will be here on Easter Sunday. And experience the joy of the resurrection. You see, we don't like the suffering stuff. There's a growing number of pastors and priests and bishops of the church, especially the liberals and the emerging church movement, who push back on suffering and the need for a cross altogether. In fact, one of those Anglican priests of the more liberal bent said this. He said, the idea of God Murdering his son for the salvation of the world is barbaric and morally indefensible. It turns Christianity into cosmic child abuse. 
That phrase, cosmic child abuse, he's not the only person that's coined that. A lot of people put it that way. We in this church believe it was not cosmic child abuse. In fact, we at St. Paul's believe that the cross of Christ is both purposeful and necessary and effective for the salvation of the world. And if you don't believe that God, if you believe that God could save the world outside the cross of suffering, then please read something good. Read a good theologian. Pray that God would reveal the truth to you. Because where you are right now won't get you to heaven. It won't get you to heaven. Now, why do we believe that the cross and its suffering is both necessary, purposeful, and effective? Well, the first reason is of God's nature, that God is both just and loving. Those two divine natures come together. If God were only loving, and if he said, I'll go on and sin, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it, I'll overlook it, then what you'd be reducing God to is a sappy, sentimentalistic God who is not very loving in the end. If you say that God is just but not loving, then what you get is a tyrannical king putting his thumb upon us under the weight of the law. To put it another way, Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, power without love is reckless and abusive. Love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Love implementing the demands of justice. See, only Christianity gives that answer to the world. We, among all the world religions, have a God of both justice and forgiveness. We have a God of power and love. We have a God of truth and mercy. We have a God who takes sin seriously and its penalty and yet provides a covering for that same sin. I love the way the Bible puts it in Psalm 8510, one of my favorite verses that explains God's nature in this way. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. They've kissed each other. On the cross, we see both things happening in Jesus, mercy and truth. But what is the truth about us, human beings, that would make the cross necessary? What is the truth? Well, Isaiah told us last week in his words about the suffering servant. He said, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each one turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The truth about us is that we have all, like sheep, gone astray. Jesus will later say, no one is good but God alone. Paul will say in Romans 3, his, his worldview is even worse. He says in verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one, not even one. We're all acolytes. Let me explain that, okay? Jennings and Jessica Smith, are, with their two precious children, they went to 1115 about a year ago. And, you know, we're ringing those sanctus bells over there at the climactic points in the Eucharist. Well, Jennings, little Jennings, uh, at the sound of the first bell, we had a really vigorous acolyte that morning. He rang it really loud, and his, he perked up and said, what is that? What is that? Who are those people? <laughs> and his mom and dad leaned over. Those are the acolytes. The bad guys? They're bad guys? I didn't know the bad guys were here. 
No, the acolytes, not the bad guys. But young Jennings was right about one thing. We're all bad guys, even the acolytes. So that's why the cross is necessary. Somebody's got to deal with our sin. Somebody has to, to suffer if we have a just God. Someone has to pay the price, the penalty. Someone has to have the condemnation of the sentence upon their backs. If you remember how it was done in the Old Testament, you had the temple. And inside the temple, in the holiest of places, there was God's presence. And there was a curtain that shielded the sinful people from God's presence. And on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one priest properly prepared would take the offerings of the perfect unblemished sacrifices of the people and slaughter them and offer their blood in atonement for the sins of the people. In fact, you'll read in Hebrews 9, under the law, everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the shedding of blood, no forgiveness of sin. But what we realize also in Hebrews is that the shedding of bloods of goats and lambs was not effective eternally. It was only a temporary thing. He would later say in Hebrews, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins fully. So Jesus was necessary. The suffering of the cross was necessary. The undoing of the curse of Genesis 3.15 could only come through the suffering and death of Jesus. Now I want to drive home a point this morning. We say that Jesus died for our sins, and that's true. But Jesus died not only for you, but instead of you. He suffered the curse for you and instead of you, so you wouldn't have to. He literally became our substitute, taking on all the sin of the world. What wondrous love is that? Galatians 3.13, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse of for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Jesus, you see what he's doing? He's taking everything that is mean and ugly and vile and putrid about human beings throughout all of history, and he's soaking it into himself and bearing the curse of condemnation. I love what Luther said about that. He said, all the prophets of the Old Testament foresaw that the cross of Jesus, on the cross of Jesus, he became the greatest murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer that the world has ever known. Our most merciful father sent his only son into the world and said to him, Jesus, you will become Peter, the denier. You will become Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. Jesus, you will become David, the adulterer. You will become Adam, that sinner, which the apple he did eat in paradise. He soaked all the condemnation of sin into himself. Jesus, you'll become the sex trafficker, the absentee father, the drug-addicted mother, the rebellious teenager, the hypocrite, the racist, the murderer, the liar, the thief. You'll take all the sins of humanity upon yourself, and by your stripes they'll be healed. You see, he not only did that, but in doing that, he, he also suffered the separation from God the Father because sin and holiness cannot coexist. So he looked down, full of sin, and looked down from the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So that's why the cross is necessary, that he might bear the penalty of the curse. But why is it purposeful? Look at Luke 23, 28, if you have your Bibles. It says this in 23, 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now he goes on to tell these wonderful, beautiful daughters of Jerusalem that there's a judgment day coming. And in verse 30, he said, on that judgment day, for those outside of God, he will say, they'll begin to say to one another, to the mountains, fall on us, fall on us. And to the hills, they will scream out, cover us. Those people outside of God will have no defender from their sin. Do not weep for me, Jesus says. Weep for yourselves. On that day, you'll want to die if you're outside of God. On a merely human level, they had every right to weep for Jesus, right? I mean, he was a good man, a Jewish man. They loved him, and now he's suffering the death of a criminal. So they wept because they loved him. But you know what Jesus is implying there? It's even deeper. What he is saying is that daughters of Jerusalem, if you are perceiving my death as the senseless death of yet one more Jewish man at the hands of Rome, you got it all wrong. You're wrong. If that's all you're seeing, you're missing the point. Jesus is saying, to understand my cross, what I'm, what's going on right here, you got to go way back to Genesis 3.15. Man, this was God's plan, purpose, and foreknowledge. Don't weep for me. I'm taking on your sentence of condemnation. Don't weep for me. I'm bearing your penalty for sin. Don't weep for me. Turn to me before the day of judgment comes. And how do we turn to him? He says, weep. Weep for your sin. Weep for yourselves. Be mournful. Be repentant. Don't turn to me in pity, Jesus says. Instead, turn to me and live. Cosmic child abuse? I say not. This is the most fragrant and wonderful offering for sin once for all. Do not weep for me, yet gaze at the work that I do and live. So the cross is necessary, it's purposeful, but it's also effective. Look at verse 44 today. At that moment when the Lamb of God breathed his last, guess what happened? It says it was now the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light faded, and then the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The separation between God and sinful humans. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. At that moment, when he gave up his last, the barrier between God and humans was lifted. The curse, the ancient curse was lifted. Finally, there was true everlasting atonement for sin. And now sinners everywhere had access to God through the Son. Paul says that now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. All we like sheep have gone astray, yes, and yet God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now to whom is salvation given? Last thing we'll cover today. Look briefly at what Dr. Luke says. There are two criminals that day. There wasn't one good criminal and one bad criminal. They're both rotten scoundrels, okay? The difference is how they perceived and responded to Jesus. One focused on what Jesus could do for his situation. The other focused on what Jesus could do for his salvation. Look at verse 39. Situation versus salvation. The unrepentant criminal says this. 
It says that one of the criminals were hanged, railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see what he's doing? He doesn't want Jesus. He doesn't want a relationship with Jesus. He doesn't want to be saved and in heaven. He wants to cut a deal with God. Get me down from this cross. Lord, help me. Get me out of this mess. How many of us treat Jesus in a similar way? Yeah, we like sheep have gone astray. And yeah, we keep on going astray until we get into a bind and then we come back to God. We get stuck and we pray, Lord, fix this mess and I'll believe in you. Just get me out of this one tight spot and I promise I'll tithe, give a whole 10% next year. I'll go back to church, might even find a Bible study. If you'll take me down from the cross I'm on. How many of us want to be saved, but we don't want a relationship with the Savior? My friends, if you're just using God for your own means to get what you want, the kind of life you want, if you are playing at this Christian thing, then you're as damnable as that thief or that criminal on the cross. Let's look at the other criminal in verse 40, how he responds to Jesus. But that criminal rebuked the first one, saying, Do you not fear God? since you're under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now I'm sure that thief would have accepted if Jesus said, oh, just a big old shit, let's all come down from our crosses, it'll be okay. But he doesn't ask for that, does he? doesn't ask to save his body. He asks to save his soul. He simply wants Jesus. He wants forgiveness. He wants to be made right with Jesus. He wants to stand in the beautiful presence of the Lord. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all he asks. Do you see the difference? Do you see why one criminal is condemned and the other not? Because one seeks God for what God can do for him. The other seeks to make Jesus or God the center of his life. There's a big difference. John Piper has a wonderful illustration of this. You see, that's a tire iron if you don't see it. Uh, he said, some of us treat God like a tire iron. You know, it's a very useful instrument, very helpful in a pinch. But you don't love a tire iron, do you? You don't take it into your home and put it over your mantle or, or make a display case for it so that all your friends can come by and say, what a great tire iron you have. No, you hide it in your trunk, right? You don't want to be caught without it, my friends, but you don't love it either, do you? That's how people treat Jesus sometimes. He's useful, but not beautiful. He's helpful, but not deserving of myself, my soul, and my body, as we say in the Eucharist. We want a Savior, but we don't want a beautiful Lord sometimes. As we've already said, Jesus' work is necessary, effective, and purposeful. But it's only effective to those willing to give themselves fully over to the grace of God. Those willing to make him the center. Those willing to accept the fragrant sacrifice for sin that he gave to us. Those willing to repent and seek his face. Those willing to love him for who he is not for what he can do for us. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, the thief said. What wondrous love. So I implore you today, if you are far from God, come to him. Come to him. Give him your sentence of condemnation. 
Give him your curse today. Give him the penalty that you deserve. His shoulders are broad and his arms are outstretched. Repent and return to the Lord with weeping. Jesus said, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Weep for your sin. Jesus says, if you will, today you'll be with me in paradise. Our friend, friends, love God for God's sake because he's beautiful. What wonderful love is this. And that beauty will change your heart and it will change your eternal destiny. Let us pray.